everyone, my name's Jacinta, and today it's my privilege to be reading God's Word for us. Before I read, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. Teach us through your Word and equip us for every good work, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we have two readings. The first reading comes from Isaiah 9, 2 to 7. Um, and the second reading is a bit different to the one in the booklet. It's Philippians 2, 6 to 11. So first reading, Isaiah 9, 2 to 7. Um, that's on page 687. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness... A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11, on, and that's on page 1179. Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, I'm on. Good, sorry. That could have been horrible. I just dropped it all over the floor. <laughs> could have been there for hours trying to reshuffle that. Glad I got it numbered. Right, well, good morning. I'm Sam. If you haven't met before, I'm one of the student ministers here at St. Stephen's. Uh, and today, uh, before we dig into the sermon, I'd love to pray for us. So how about we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, as we read your word, as we've read your word, as we listen to it now, I pray that your spirit be working in our hearts, uh, to be challenged, to be encouraged, to be uh, living for Christ and reflecting him in our lives. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Uh, 
So our world has always been at conflict. World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Afghanistan, even things going on in Ukraine at the moment. There's not one generation that has lived without seeing conflict. Even though here in Australia we've had some relative peace for many, many years as an island nation, that's not the case for many other countries. So, for instance, of February 2001, the military had a coup in Myanmar. They overthrew the government. They were forcibly thrown out. And I recently heard that the military fired a missile on its own people. They destroyed a house only two doors down from a missionary that I know. This is horrible. Human lives taken so flippantly, and for what reason? The ambitions of powerful men? Do you pray for peace? Do you long for an end to war? People in these countries, they do. So today, we're going to be looking at God's promise of peace between nations and how this promise is fulfilled. So to do this, we're going to start by looking at Israel's history. And when I speak about Israel, I'm talking about the Jewish nation of the Old Testament, not the nation in modern-day Middle East. So the history of Israel is no different to the history of the world. Israel's almost always been at conflict with the nations around them. The whole book of Joshua, for instance, is the story of God's people at conflict, taking the promised land. When David, one of the promised kings, uh, the greatest kings of Israel, becomes kings, there seems to be some, some relative peace for God's people. But David's own son, Absalom, stages a coup against his father, the king, and he has to run away. Then after King David, his other son, Solomon, becomes king. And another relative period of peace comes for Israel. But this peace too comes to an end when Solomon's own officials rebel against him and the kingdom is divided into two, the northern tribe and the southern tribe. Both tribes are then eventually conquered by other nations and the nation of Israel is no longer the same. This is Israel's history. It's a very short history, but their history nonetheless. You can read more about it in the Old Testament. But they have had many, many conflicts with the nations around them. They've had their own conflicts within their own nation, similar to that of Myanmar and their coup that they had. Israel has always been at conflict, always been at war. I could imagine that they would have just been praying, hoping for a day where there'd be no more conflict, when they wouldn't lose their husbands and sons in war anymore. Just a moment of relief from the stress, pain, and agony that war brings. And God responded to their prayers. God promised peace. In Psalm 85, verse 8, it says, I will listen to what God, the Lord, says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. And in 1 Corinthians 14, it says that God's very nature is not disorder, 
not conflict, not war, but he is a God of peace. But the biggest promise of peace is found in 2 Samuel 7, reading from verse 10. It says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his, king, his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This, so this is God's promise to David. King David. God is promising that he'll give him rest from his enemies. That wicked people will no longer oppress them. And David's descendant will rule on his throne forever. God has promised peace. Rest from enemies. Through a king. And the peace that this king brings will last forever. God has promised peace through a king forever. That is the promise that the Israelites are clinging to. Nation after nation they fought, just hoping for the day when God's promised king will come and there will finally be rest, be peace from their enemies. For a while, I'm sure Israel might have thought that Solomon, David's son, was the one who would fulfill this promise. He brought relative peace for Israel. He even built the temple for God. He was the wisest king of Israel. But he died. Solomon's reign didn't last forever. So who is this king? Who is this descendant of David if it isn't Solomon? The one who will bring peace forever. Well, the prophet Isaiah gives a description of this king in chapter 9, which we read earlier. In verse 7, we're told that this prophecy is about the one who will reign on David's throne forever. So the promise from 2 Samuel 7, right? And from verse 6, this is what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This king will be very much human. He'll be a truly human descendant of David. He'll be flesh and blood. He'll be born. I've never witnessed a birth myself. Maybe you've got a child and grandparents. Maybe you've seen a child be born before. I looked at some photos of newly born children. It looks pretty gross. They're covered in blood and all these other fluids. and yeah. But there's, never, there's something truly human about being born, right? We've all been born, no matter how gross it is. So this descendant of David, he will be human. But he will also be God. He will be God. One of the titles given to this child in Isaiah is Mighty God. This human child, this descendant of David, will be divine. The promised king will be God, God himself. God with us. God becoming one of us. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, 
It says a virgin will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this promised king of peace is both fully human and fully God, both man and God. And that is who Jesus is. He is both fully man and fully God. So Colossians 2, verse 9, says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What that is saying is that in Jesus, in Jesus exists everything that is divine. Everything that makes God God is in Jesus. Jesus is the very human descendant of David and mighty God. So before we continue, I want us to think about what this actually means for us. What does it mean that Jesus is both fully man and fully God? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but I've got two here. First one is that he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be surrounded by conflict. You ever thought when you pray or you... Maybe things are really tough at home. Maybe fighting with the husband or the wife. Kids don't listen. God, Jesus knows what it's like to be surrounded by conflict. He was human. He was born into a world of conflict. Herod, the king at the time, was putting to death all young boys who were born. He knows what it's like to be in a world surrounded by conflict. Just look at the ministry of his own life. And secondly, we must take him seriously. He's God, right? He's more than a moral teacher. He's more than a miracle worker. He's more than that little baby boy laying in a manger. He is mighty God. If he's just a moral teacher, I can choose whether he's right or wrong or not. But if he's God, what he says goes. There's no ifs or buts. We we don't argue with God. Who would ask questions of him? So if Jesus is God, we must take him seriously. So, if Jesus is God's promised king of peace, how does he do it? How does he bring peace between nations? Does he do what the Myanmar military do? Does he assert all his powers as God himself to dispose of all of those who would oppose him? No. He brings peace by his blood spilt on the cross. Colossians 1.19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus, the promised king of peace, dies. He reconciles us with God through his blood. In other words, Jesus makes peace between us and God by his blood. That is how he brings peace. But hold on. Wasn't he meant to bring peace between nations, not God? Shouldn't his death have put an end to war? Shouldn't his death bring peace between people? Well, see, this is the plot twist 
in the history of the world. We look at the war and the conflict around us and in our past, and we see people hating each other, killing and fighting each other. But the reason for this violence is humanity's rejection of God. Because of humanity's sin, there is war and conflicts. Sin has corrupted the human heart and turned it to war. And that sin is in our hearts, and it's why we reject God's rule over our lives. Those who participate in the unjust taking of human life, using war to promote their own selfish gain, it's the sin in their hearts, it's their rejection of God that brings this about. The same sin is in our heart, and it separates us from God. I think the best way to explain this point is with Cain and Abel. So after Adam and Eve had rejected God and his rule over their lives when they ate from the tree, their very first son, Cain, what does he do? Kills his own brother. The moment humanity rejected God was the moment we started killing each other. So for there to be peace between nations, sin must be dealt with first. There can be no peace until there is peace with God. That is why Jesus, the promised King of Peace, reconciles us with God by spilling his blood on the cross. But God's promised King needs to rule forever. Remember that promise from 2 Samuel 7? 2 Samuel 7. He needs to rule forever. How can Jesus rule forever if he's dead? Well, he didn't stay dead, did he? Philippians 2, 7 says, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself, suffered death, reconciled us with God, he was raised up to eternal life never to die again, and given the name above every name. And a day is coming when Jesus will return and every single person will confess that he is Lord. But until he returns, the world will still be at war, unfortunately. Matthew, 2, uh, Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus says that there will be wars and rumors of wars until the day he returns. So between now and the day he does return to bring an end to all conflict, we wait for the final part of God's promise to be fulfilled. So while we wait, we as God's people under his King Jesus, we need to live at peace with others. Be at peace with those around us and peace with those here at church. If Jesus is our king, we, his people, need to be a people of peace. So if, if you're at conflict with someone here at church, be reconciled. 
I know it's not that straightforward. The world is messy. But as God's people, we are called to be at peace. And this, this side of, of heaven, that may not be possible, but as God's people, we are called to be at peace. So please, if you are in conflict with someone, make peace. As Jesus, our King of Peace, made peace with God for us. Now, if you wouldn't say that Jesus is your king, then you're at war with God. It's pretty, pretty big, right? Being at war with God, but it's true. If Jesus isn't your king, you're not part of his kingdom. Heaven. Right? You need to be at peace with God. You do that by putting your trust in Jesus as the one who can reconcile you with God through his blood. There's no other way to make peace with God. So please, if you're at war with God, don't be. Believe in Jesus. Be reconciled with God. The birth of Jesus is no ordinary event. God's people have been waiting hundreds of years for God's descendant of David, who is both God and man, to come and reconcile us to God the one who will bring peace between all nations. That is Jesus. The little baby boy laying in a manger is the mighty king of peace. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you have brought peace between us and you through your one and only son, Jesus, that by believing in him that we can have peace with you. I pray that you help us to keep trusting in your promise of the day when you'll finally bring an end to all conflict. And I pray that between now and then that places like Myanmar and other countries around the world that are still at war, that you'd bring peace. But our hope wouldn't be in peace for this life, but in the life to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.